0: Before we begin, I just want to take a moment to thank all of you who have connected with the show on social media. I spend most of the week alone, researching, writing, recording, and editing. And don't get me wrong, I love it, but it can be a bit isolating at times. So it's great when I can pop on to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and connect with all the listeners and other podcasters there. Thanks so much for commenting, retweeting, sending me messages, and sharing cool articles with me. I really appreciate it. And our little community is growing, and that's so cool. So I've decided to set a couple of goals, and if you guys can help me with it, that would be great. I've decided to give a prize pack away to our 1,500th Twitter follower and our 1,000th Facebook follower. So if you're listening and you haven't begun following the show on social media, now's the time. And if you're already following, tell a friend. I'll be doing some contests and giveaways in the future for followers and listeners both, so it'll be worth your while. All the links to our social media are in the show notes, as well as announced at the end of today's podcast. And by the way, I have merchandise rolling out soon, and I'll be giving you info on how you can score that very, very soon. Thanks again. Now on with the show. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Sweetheart Killers, and the next few episodes will be dedicated to couples who killed together. This is a rare and fascinating phenomenon. Killers who work in pairs seem to be spurred on by each other to commit more numerous, as well as more violent, crimes. We've seen this pattern before, where it seems if the two had not met each other, it's possible they may never have crossed the threshold into murder. Some of the deadly duos that fit this pattern include Sacco and Vanzetti, Lucas and Tool, Lake and Eng, and Biono and Bianchi, the Hillside Stranglers. But even more rare are male-female couples who kill. These couples meet, form a strong bond and attachment, and then begin to kill, sometimes traveling the country together to commit murder and mayhem. Join me for chapter two, where I'll detail the case of a couple who traveled the American Midwest, leaving death and destruction in their path. This is Chapter 2, Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. July 12, 1983. A young woman named Terry Coleman walked into the Waukegan, Illinois, Police Department to report an altercation with her brother. She had just discovered that the previous month, her half-brother, a 27-year-old named Alton Coleman, had molested her 8-year-old daughter. Her daughter reported that her uncle, while visiting, had kissed her and fondled her buttocks and genital area over her clothes. Her daughter had not told her before, but then just the day before, when her brother was visiting again, Terry saw him rushing from the bathroom and entered to find her daughter distressed. After asking her what had happened, she told her about the previous incident and also reported that her uncle had just molested her again. This time he fondled her and also put a finger into her vagina. After Terry confronted him by phone, he came to her house and tried to kick the door down in anger. She now wanted to file a police report against him. Alton Coleman was arrested and charged with indecent liberties with the child. Three weeks later, Terry Coleman would go to court to drop the charges, saying that it was all a misunderstanding. A lot of families go through that, she told the judge. It doesn't make any difference now. The judge stated that he believed she was terrified of Alton Coleman, finding her new version of the incident completely implausible. However, without any witnesses or physical evidence, he had no choice but to drop the charges and release Coleman. Why was Terry Coleman terrified of her brother Alton? To understand, we just have to look at his history. Alton Coleman was born October 6, 1956, in Waukegan, Illinois, He was raised by his mother, Mary Bates Coleman, and his grandmother, Alma Hosea. There is no mention of his father in the records. According to both a prison psychologist and a reverend who knew Coleman as he was growing up, his mother was a known prostitute and his grandmother ran a brothel and a gambling house. Alton was one of five children born to Mary who began having babies at the age of 14. Besides being a prostitute, Mary was a drug addict and mentally ill. His grandmother said that when Alton was a baby, his mother threw him in the trash can and he would have perished had she not pulled him out and saved him. Coleman says he was often beaten as a child and he may have suffered brain damage. However, this didn't affect his ability to charm people. He seemed normal to most people who knew him as an adult. His grandmother practiced a voodoo religion and would send young Alton to kill small animals that she would use to create potions. The reverend said that growing up in the brothel, Alton was exposed to drugs, violence, and deviant sex. Coleman reports being sexually molested and also exposed to bestiality, pedophilia, and group sex as a boy, with his mother and grandmother as participants. When he was young, he was often unclean and prone to urinating on himself, which earned him the nickname Pissy in the neighborhood. He dropped out of school in the ninth grade and worked in the kitchen of a local veterans hospital. As he grew, he became feared in the neighborhood. He was no longer called Pissy, but Big L. He had a quick temper and was known to carry a knife at all times. He sometimes ran with street gangs. He began racking up arrests beginning at age 16. His first arrest in 1972 was for burglary. He was committed briefly to the juvenile department of corrections and then placed on probation. The following year, he was charged with disorderly conduct when he damaged his mother's house because she would not buy him a $6 jacket. He was ordered to pay a $15 fine plus court costs. Although he was still on probation for his prior offense, for some reason he was not returned to the juvenile correctional facility. His first adult offense, committed just two months after he turned 18, was for rape, attempted kidnapping, and attempted armed robbery. With another man as an accomplice, the pair carjacked an elderly woman at gunpoint from Waukegan, driving her to Evanston, Illinois, where she was then raped by Coleman. They then stole the car and $100 from her. The elderly woman did not want to go through with the trial for the rape, so Coleman was only charged with the armed robbery. He received two to six years in Joliet State Prison. While in prison, Coleman was accused several times of sexual assault against other inmates. A prison psychologist wrote in a report that Coleman was not gay or even bisexual, but, quote, pansexual, willing to have intercourse with any object, man, woman, child. Coleman was released from prison on parole in 1976 after serving less than three years. Back on the streets, Coleman continued his violent tendencies. Only three months after his release, he asked for a ride from a 17-year-old female he knew from the neighborhood. He then tricked her into driving to an isolated area where he dragged her into an abandoned building and raped her. He was arrested but acquitted at a jury trial. Coleman was a well-spoken and even attractive young man, and the jury didn't believe that the sex wasn't consensual and acquitted him. However, when he was in the Lake County Jail awaiting trial on the rape charge, he forced three separate inmates to engage in sexual acts and was charged with three counts of deviant sexual assault and sentenced to six months. When Coleman was 25, he was once again charged with rape. Like many of Coleman's victims, The young woman he met initially thought he was a nice guy and became friendly with him. She was in the Navy and invited him to a picnic at the nearby Naval Station. While at the picnic, she told him that she was looking for off-base housing, and he offered to show her a place he knew that was for rent. He lured her to an industrial area of Waukegan, where he raped her. He then returned her to her barracks. Once again, he went before a jury who acquitted the nice-looking young man. Soon after, Coleman met and married a teenage girl. After only six months, however, she left him and asked for police protection while she moved her belongings out of their apartment. She would later report that she could not take his obsession with bondage, very young girls, and violent sex. Then in 1983 came the charge by his sister of the molestation of his niece. Around the same time was when he would meet Deborah Brown, and his violent attacks would increase and intensify. Deborah Denise Brown was one of 11 children. She was borderline mentally retarded. It was reported that she had suffered from head trauma as a child. Later, her IQ would be tested with scores being reported between 59 and 74. Her family reports that she was never violent or in trouble with the law until she met Coleman. She was considered a good girl by those who knew her. Deborah Brown met Coleman in 1983. She was engaged to another man at the time but she soon left her family and moved in with Coleman, quickly joining in on his criminal activities. His niece reported that on the first occasion when Coleman molested her, Brown had been present. On February 26, 1984, Coleman met a woman in North Chicago who was waiting for her 14-year-old daughter to get off of work at a fast food restaurant. He struck up a conversation with her about her job search. After telling her that he had heard of some job opportunities, She gave him her address and phone number. Two days later, he went to her home, where her daughter was home alone. Telling her he was there to drop off job applications for her mother, she let him in. He then raped the girl at knife point. Afterwards, he forced her to write a note which read, Al, I really enjoyed tonight, and we must do this again real soon. He then had her sign her name, adding, P.S., let this be our little secret. Coleman was arrested, but let out on bail until his arraignment, which was to take place on May 30th. But his rape and murder spree would begin on May 29th, and he'd be on the run soon after. Coleman had befriended a young woman named Juanita Wheat in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He struck up a conversation with her when she was outside her home hanging laundry. He told her his name was Robert Knight, and that he lived a few blocks away. In actuality, he lived in Gary, Indiana with Deborah Brown. Over the next few weeks, he got to know Juanita as well as her two children, nine-year-old Bernita and five-year-old Brandon. He had come over for dinner a few times and to visit the family. On May 29th, Juanita allowed Robert to take her children to a local carnival. Shortly after they returned, he asked if the children could accompany him to his home. He had a pair of stereo speakers that he wanted to give her as a Mother's Day gift, and he couldn't carry them alone. Juanita at first declined but he talked her into it. However, she did not allow Brandon to go because he was too little and because it was a school night. Vernita was eager to go, and Juanita let her leave with him to run the short errand. It would be the last time she saw her daughter alive. Robert, or Alton Coleman, had spent several weeks gaining the young mother's trust, and now 9-year-old Vernita was alone with him. They left Juanita's house around 10.30 p.m. and were supposed to be back in just a few minutes. The next sighting of Coleman and the little girl was an hour later when they were spotted at a local tavern. From there, they were picked up by a taxicab and driven to a barbecue joint across the state line in Waukegan, Illinois, about 15 miles away. It was now May 30th, and Juanita alerted Kenosha police about the disappearance of her daughter around 1 a.m. Coleman returned to his grandmother's house early that next morning to take a shower and change for his court appearance later that morning. Later that day, after Juanita Wheat reported her daughter missing, the police had her look at a photo book of mugshots, and she identified the man she knew as Robert, but who was actually Alton Coleman. The police knew Coleman's record, and the FBI was quickly called in to help find Vernita. They went to his last known address, his grandmother's house. Deborah Brown answered the door. She told them that Coleman had been there that morning, but had left for a court appearance, and they hadn't seen him since. She also said that he hadn't come home the night before, and had told her he'd done something bad the night before, but he didn't say what it was. Now an all-points bulletin was put out for Alton Coleman, and a $5,000 reward was offered for information leading to his capture. Meanwhile, there was still no news about the whereabouts of little Vernita. Investigators knew that as the minutes passed, it was more unlikely they would find her alive. Deborah Brown met up at some point with Coleman, and they were on the run together. It is not believed that she was involved in the Vernita wheat abduction, but she would participate in Coleman's crime spree from that point on. The couple laid low for two weeks, only servicing again on June 18th, when they approached two little girls who were returning home from a trip to a nearby store. Coleman and Brown looked like a nice, friendly young couple. Brown was 21 years old and Coleman, 28. They were both African-American, as were the two little girls they encountered, 7-year-old Tamika Turks and 9-year-old Annie Hillard. All of Coleman's previous victims had also been African-American. Coleman hid in plain sight in predominantly African-American communities where he would not stand out. Now the two girls were chatted up by Coleman and Brown and when they offered to give them some clothes that they had that were their size, the children agreed. Brown, as another female, gained their trust and they agreed to go off with her. Of course, Coleman followed a short distance behind without their knowledge. They walked for several minutes before Brown lured them to a secluded wooded area. Coleman grabbed one of the girls while Brown held the other. Tamika's shirt was taken off of her and they tied the girls up with the strips that they tore from it. Tamika began to cry, and the pair held her mouth closed and began to beat her. Coleman then stomped on her repeatedly, and when he believed she was dead, carried her off deeper into the woods. Annie was then raped by both Coleman and Brown. When Tamika was heard moaning in the woods, they went to her and strangled her to death. They returned to Annie and strangled her with a belt, leaving her for dead. Somehow, Annie was able to drag herself to the road where she was found by a passerby. Although she suffered terrible injuries that would require surgery and an extensive period of recovery, Annie lived and was able to relate what had happened to her and her friend, and also to identify her attackers. One day after the attacks on Tamika and Annie, Bernita Wheat's body was discovered in an abandoned apartment building by a man who was looking for scrap metal to sell. She was discovered two blocks from the last place she was seen with Coleman, the barbecue joint in Illinois. She was badly decomposed, and the coroner was unable to determine whether or not she had been sexually assaulted. Alton Coleman's fingerprints were found on a door that was near where her body was found. That same day, Coleman and Brown met a 25-year-old woman named Donna Williams in Gary, Indiana. They said their names were Phil and Pam, and that they were from Boston. Donna invited them to her church that evening. They agreed. She arrived at the church that evening to set up chairs for the service, leaving at 7.50 p.m. to pick up the couple for church. A week later, her car would be found in Detroit, Michigan. Coleman's fingerprint was found on the glove compartment, and a fake ID with Brown's picture and the name Lisa Fisher was found in the car. Donna was nowhere to be found. Coleman and Brown's crime spree was now in full swing. They would continue to commit robberies and car thefts, switching cars often along the way, assaults, rape, and murder. They would commit over 20 assaults in 13 separate attacks, including eight murders. Their crimes were spread over six different states. Some have theorized that Alton Coleman, after his last rape charge, decided that he had nothing to lose and progressed to more vicious attacks as well as murder. This is possible. We see this pattern with mass murderers as well as spree and serial killers. They often begin or escalate to criminal activity after life stressors present themselves, such as a divorce, a job loss, or another rejection of some kind, or, as in Coleman's case, legal problems. He had been able to talk his way out of many assaults, robberies, and even rapes in the past, but the jig was up, and it seems he knew it. Once he murdered Vernita Wheat, there was no turning back. Coleman has alternately been labeled by the media as a serial killer, mass murderer, or spree killer. I want to take a minute to explain what each one means and what designation is the most correct for Coleman and Brown. A mass murderer is a person who kills four or more people in one location during one continuous period of time. Examples of this would be Richard Speck, who killed eight student nurses in a home over one night in 1966. Dylan Roof would be another example. He killed nine people in a Charleston, South Carolina church in 2015. While Alton Coleman would ultimately murder eight people, it was over a period of several weeks and in various locations, including several states, as I previously mentioned. So Coleman does not fit the definition of a mass murderer. A spree killer, like a serial killer, is defined as killing two or more people. But unlike a serial killer, there is no break between killings. Often called a cooling-off period, this break can be a day, days, weeks, months, or even years, but they will continue killing, typically until they are caught. Both spree and serial killers commit their murders in more than one location. Coleman and Brown most accurately can be described as serial killers because they killed more than two people in multiple locations and had cooling-off periods between murders, ranging in time from a day to several weeks. After Donna Williams' disappearance, the couple would not murder again for two and a half weeks, but they would continue to commit violent acts along the way. The pair kidnapped a young woman five days later in Michigan. They forced her at knife point to drive them to Ohio. Luckily, she was able to escape after deliberately crashing the car and fleeing. Four days later, on June 28th, the couple entered a home in Dearborn Heights, Michigan and viciously beat a married couple breaking the wife's arm in the process. They then took $90 and stole their car. The couple survived. A few days later, they met a 55-year-old African-American woman in Detroit. They chatted for a little while, and the woman, Mary Billups, invited them to dinner and to spend the night at her home. The next day, they told Mary they needed a ride, and she took them to a friend's home. Once they reached the home of 55-year-old Marion Gaston, they threatened both him and Mary with knives. Coleman then punched Mary, knocking her unconscious. They took them both to the basement where they tied them up with electrical cords, gagged them, and Coleman beat them both with a wrench. Once again they fled, this time in Marion's stolen car. Marion and Mary would both survive their injuries. Four days later in Toledo, Ohio, they once again befriended a stranger. This time it was a minister named Ernie Jackson. Coleman said that he was from Alabama and on leave from the Army. Brown introduced herself as Doris Smith. The minister invited the couple to his home for a meal. At the minister's house, they met one of his wife's friends, named Virginia Temple, age 30. Coleman, finding out where she lived, went with Brown that evening to her home. Virginia had five children who ranged in age from an infant to 10 years old. They murdered Virginia by beating and strangling her, and then raped and murdered her 10-year-old daughter, Rochelle. They hid their bodies in a crawl space of the home. They stole clothing and jewelry before disappearing once again. Later that day, they entered the home of a 77-year-old man and his wife. Threatening them with a gun, they were tied up and handcuffed. They stole $200, clothing, and their car. On July 11th, three weeks after she went missing, Donna Williams' body was found in an abandoned building, badly decomposed. She had been murdered by ligature strangulation. It could not be determined whether she had been sexually assaulted due to the advanced state of decomposition. Also on July 11th, Coleman and Brown committed their sixth murder. Tani Story, age 15, left school that afternoon and was seen in the company later that day with a black male and a black female. The next day, her parents reported her missing. A week later, she would be found dead in a vacant apartment building. She had been strangled. Again, the decomposition of the body made it impossible to determine if she'd been sexually assaulted. Her classmates identified Coleman from mugshots as the man they'd seen her with the day she went missing. Deborah Brown's fingerprint was lifted from a Michael Jackson button Tawny had pinned to her jacket. The next day, the FBI would add Coleman as a special addition to its 10 Most Wanted list. He would only be the 10th person since the list began in 1950 to warrant such a designation. There was a huge manhunt underway for Coleman and Brown, with searches being conducted in several states and jurisdictions. The media had been alerted, and their pictures were plastered everywhere, with a be on the lookout and armed and dangerous warnings issued to the public. Just two days after Tawny Story's murder, Coleman and Brown would commit one of their most vicious assaults to date. In Norwood, Ohio, Coleman and Brown rode up to the home of Marlene and Harry Walters on bicycles. Harry Walters was African American, Marlene was Caucasian. They had a camping truck for sale parked in their driveway. Coleman and Brown said they were interested in purchasing it, and after a few minutes of conversation, the couple invited them inside to have some lemonade since it was such a warm day. It was inside their house that the vicious attack took place. The Walters' 19-year-old daughter returned home about 3.45 p.m. and found the house to be in a terrible state. Broken items were scattered throughout the home, and most terrifying, the living room and hallway were splattered with blood. She began frantically calling for her parents, but they were nowhere to be found. She called her grandmother, who told her that Marlene had called earlier in the day to say there was a young couple over who were interested in purchasing the camper. When she hung up, she checked the basement. It was there that she found her parents. Her father was bound and beaten and barely clinging to life. Her mother was lying nearby with a bloody sheet over her head. Her hands and feet had been bound by electrical cords. She had a ligature around her throat and was dead. Mr. Walters would survive and later tell police the events of that day. Coleman had picked up a wooden candlestick from their living room and hit him so hard on the back of his head that it broke the candlestick and drove a chunk of his skull into his brain. He didn't remember any details clearly after that. The coroner would determine that Mrs. Walters had been struck on the head over twenty times. The back of her skull was crushed. A dozen lacerations had been made to her face with a pair of ice grips. Fragments of a soda bottle with Coleman's fingerprints would be found in the living room. Two pairs of bloody footprints were found in the basement. The Walters' car, a red Plymouth Reliant, was missing from the driveway as well as money, jewelry, and shoes. They had left the two bicycles behind and their bloody clothing and shoes. They drove the Walters' stolen car to Lexington, Kentucky. There they kidnapped a 33-year-old man who they encountered in a parking lot. They abducted him and then called his wife, demanding a ransom. She was to take money to a gas station in Richmond, Kentucky. They didn't show up to pick up the money, but instead drove to Dayton, Ohio, where they abandoned the car. Several hours later, the car would be found with their hostage alive in the trunk. They then returned to Dayton, Ohio, to the home of Reverend Millard Gay and his wife Catherine. Coleman and Brown had met them previously and had even stayed in their home. But now when they returned, Reverend Gay told them that he knew that they were wanted fugitives. Coleman then said, Well, honey, I guess we'll have to burn them. They pulled guns on them, but Catherine Gay knocked the gun out of Coleman's hand. A scuffle began, and Reverend Gay was pistol-whipped by Coleman. They held up the couple and began to strangle Catherine, but did not kill her. Before they left the bound pair, Coleman told him that he didn't usually leave witnesses. He usually, quote, got rid of them. He tried to shoot Catherine, but the gun malfunctioned. They stole money in their car and left. Two days later, on July 19th, the body of Eugene Scott, a 79-year-old man, was found in a ditch in Indianapolis, Indiana. He'd been shot four times and repeatedly stabbed. After killing him, they had stolen his car and drove it to Evanston, Illinois. They were returning home, and it would be their undoing. The next day, back in Illinois, a former neighbor of Coleman's was driving and saw him and Brown crossing a street in Evanston. He drove to a gas station and called the police. All units were now on the lookout for them, and it didn't take long before they were spotted at a nearby park. As officers approached Coleman, Brown walked away towards the far side of the park but police vehicles had surrounded the park's entrances and she was quickly apprehended as well. They were both taken into custody on July twentieth, 1984. Their reign of terror had ended. Brown was searched and a gun was found in her purse. Coleman had a knife hidden in between two pairs of socks he was wearing when arrested. Coleman had no identification on him and denied being the wanted fugitive. His fingerprints were taken and it was quickly confirmed that he was Alton Coleman. Coleman and Brown were separated, and Brown at first refused to talk and asked for an attorney. But when she was transferred to federal lockup in Chicago, she decided she wanted to talk. Over two and a half hours, she confessed to the details of her and Coleman's seven-week crime spree. After, she asked to speak with an attorney, and no more questions were asked. Now, with so many crimes to prosecute and jurisdictions to consider, the authorities had to spend time deciding on a plan of action. In all, Coleman and Brown were responsible for the murders of four adults and four children, and the body count would have been higher, except some, like nine-year-old Annie Hillard, miraculously survived. A week after they were arrested, over 50 law enforcement officers from six states meant to decide how to prosecute them. Michigan, where Donna Williams was murdered, does not have the death penalty, and was quickly ruled out. It was finally decided that Ohio, where four of Coleman and Brown's victims were murdered, Virginia and Rochelle Temple, Tawny Story, and Marlene Walters, would be the first to try the pair for their crimes. The U.S. Attorney Dan K. Webb said, We are convinced that the prosecution in Ohio can most quickly and most likely result in the swiftest imposition of the death penalty against Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. With Brown's confession and the fact that Coleman left his fingerprints at virtually every crime scene, they were soon conclusively tied to all the crimes they were charged with. However, there were so many charges that, realistically, they would never be tried for most of the crimes. Coleman would never be prosecuted for the murder of Donna Williams, the kidnapping of the Detroit woman who escaped, the assaults and robberies on the Joneses, the elderly couple in Toledo, the Reverend and Mrs. Gay or Mary Billups and Marion Gaston. He would also not be prosecuted for the murders of Eugene Scott, Virginia Temple, or the rape and murder of her daughter, Rochelle. He would be prosecuted and sentenced to death for the murders of Vernita Wheat, Tamika Turks, Tawny Story, and Marlene Walters. He was also tried and convicted on the federal charge of kidnapping the man in Kentucky and received a sentence of 20 years in prison for that crime. Coleman was the first person ever to be handed down death sentences in three different states. However, his death sentence for the murder of Tawny Story was overturned due to ineffective counsel, and his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Deborah Brown, for her part, was tried and sentenced to death in the murders of both Tamika Turks and Tawny Story. She was incarcerated in the Ohio Women's Prison at Marysville to await her execution for Story's murder. However, in 1991, Governor Richard Celeste, a strong opponent of the death penalty, commuted her sentence to life four days before leaving office. He went on record to say he opposed the death sentence for Brown, since tests showed that she was mentally retarded, suffered from childlike emotional development, and had a, quote, master-slave relationship with Coleman. She is serving out her life sentence in Ohio and still faces the death penalty in Indiana for Tamika Turk's murder. Brown never showed any remorse or repentance for her crimes, even going so far as to take the blame for several of the crimes she and Coleman committed together. She tried to help him duck the death penalty by taking responsibility for Marlene Walter's murder. Before her sentencing, she sent a note to the judge which read, I killed the bitch and I don't give a damn. I had fun out of it. Coleman continued to fight against his death sentence in several appeals over the years. His case went before the United States Supreme Court several times between 1985 and 2002, claiming that his convictions and death sentences were unconstitutional, but his appeals were unsuccessful. His attorneys tried to make a case for sparing Coleman's life, attributing his actions to the brain damage he suffered during his abusive childhood. In a clemency hearing, a neuropsychologist testified that Coleman was so brain damaged that, quote, he's never been able to fully participate in anything he's ever done, except killing, a parole board member shot back. His request for clemency was denied. After 18 years of appeals, his last-ditch effort to avoid the death sentence, argued before the Ohio Supreme Court, stated that the state's plans to accommodate the large number of victims and survivors who wanted to view the execution would turn it into a spectator sport. Coleman had left so many victims in his wake that in order to accommodate all the people who wanted to witness his execution, the state had to set up an additional viewing room hooked up to a closed-circuit television feed. His claim was rejected on April 25, 2002, and his execution for the murder of Marlene Walters was scheduled for the very next day at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facilities Execution Chamber located in Lucasville, Ohio. Coleman had spent the following week before his execution being baptized and saying goodbye to his family. It was the first time anyone in his family had visited him in years. They said they could not see him again before the execution because they, quote, couldn't get a ride to Lucasville. Coleman spent the night before his execution with his spiritual advisor and requested the largest last meal ever recorded in Lucasville or probably anywhere else by a condemned man. For the menu, he requested filet mignon with mushroom gravy, biscuits and gravy, fried chicken, french fries, broccoli with cheese sauce, collard greens, onion rings, cornbread, a salad, sweet potato pie with whipped cream, butter pecan ice cream, and cherry cola. The filet mignon was substituted for a New York strip steak, and everything except the ice cream was provided by the prison kitchen. Sixteen witnesses were on hand that day to watch Coleman die in person or over closed circuit television, including Harry Walters, who'd been left for dead next to his murdered wife, Marlene. Coleman, now 46 years old, was brought to the death house at 10 a.m. on April 26, 2002, to be put to death by lethal injection. He laid down on a gurney and was strapped in. A shunt had already been placed into his arm and now the lines that would connect the three chemicals that would induce unconsciousness before stopping his breathing and his heart were connected. He took one look over at the witness room and seemed to mouth something, but no one could hear what he said. He was asked if he had any final words. He repeated over and over, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, until he lost consciousness. He was pronounced dead at 10.13 (laughs) a.m. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. But we have two more chapters to go in the series Sweetheart Killers, and I know you won't want to miss them. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Special thanks to our marketing assistant, Nancy Chen, and our research assistant this week, Sabrina Atkinson. You can connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter, at UponACrime. Until next time, be good to one another.